So we are in Malachi chapter 217. That's our text. We've been going through the book of Malachi for a couple month, two months, three months. It's been a while. And uh, this is where we are. And in case you thought verse 17 is an isolated verse, it's not an isolated verse uh, by any means. And this is what essentially has taken place. Malachi is writing this letter around 460 B.C. And the people of Judah are experiencing some hardships. Social, economic, political. Things aren't exactly going the way they might like them to go. In fact, uh, they're not going very well at all. In fact, 25 years before Malachi writes this, Xerxes, the leader of the Persian Empire, who at this time is the ruling world empire, as the empire of Persia is expanding, so is the need to finance it. So in 485, Xerxes decides to increase the tax burden, but only on non-ethnic Persian groups. Well, the people of Judah would be greatly affected by this. In fact, Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, actually accounts for some of the hardships that the people are experiencing this high taxation, high inflation, uh, personal property being confiscated, debt slavery at unprecedented levels, things are difficult for the people of Judah. They're difficult. They're hard. And Malachi has a word for the people. Now, he prefaces his word and he says, I love you. God's saying to the people, I love you. And then, oh, by the way, you guys are messing up a whole lot. That's what a lot of this letter is filled with. I love you, but yeah, you guys have been really dropping the ball and messing up. So what's taken place right before verse 17, and this was, I think, the sermons for the first two weeks in December, is we went through verses 10 to 16, and the people have been treating each other faithlessly. The people have been treating each other faithlessly. There are two sorts of relationships. There are, there's a horizontal relationship that we have, and then there are vertical relationships, with me? Because there's horizontal and vertical. And I realize I'm doing the wrong hand signals right now for that. <laughs> so we have vertical and we have horizontal. <laughs> Got that. The people are treating each other. <laughs> the people are treating each other faithlessly. They are not treating each other the way they should be. And we see that in verses 10 to 16. We talked about this. And, and for some reason, they think that things can be okay with God in this vertical relationship when they've been treating each other, their spiritual brothers and sisters, faithlessly. Things cannot be okay with you and God when things with you and your spiritual brothers and sisters are not okay. You can't treat your spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord poorly and then think that things with you and God are going to be so tight. Like, that's, that's not going to happen. And as we saw in the context of Malachi, verses, chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, as we saw in that context, they are getting involved in relationships they have no business getting involved in. The people in Judah are getting involved in romantic relationships that aren't good with people who don't love the Lord. Oh, I'm sure maybe some of them say that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and... Here's my little spiritual saying I got from Oprah Winfrey's show, and I'm going to post it on my Facebook page. But, you know, like, the standard and caliber is just so, like, that level is non existent. 
And they're getting into relationships, like people today get into relationships they shouldn't be getting into, which is why, and I'm not going to preach that sermon over again because you guys heard that, but which is why I think it's important that you ask questions before you get into relationships with people. Like, any one of you guys or any one of you ladies, this is what I would tell my sister Olivia. I would say, hey, the guy that you're interested in, is he a Christian? Okay, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, what does he say that means? Because you know what? A lot of people say they're Christians, and then you ask them, well, what does that mean? And you get a lot of different answers. Most of them are, because I'm a good person. Or a bunch of other ones, which may be good, but not biblical. I like to ask, is this person a Christian? Do they love Jesus? Are they a member of a local church? Are they at least actively involved in a local church? And I'm going to ask why and why not questions to all these things, of course. I'm going to say, are they part of a small group? No? Why or why not? Are they, uh, do they have a, a, an older girl or an older guy in their life as a mentor? They don't? Well, are they pursuing an older guy or, or an older girl? Well, why or why not? Like, if, if someone wanted to date my sister, like, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to make it easy. Like, I want, the, I want the standard to be high. Like, that's a big deal that that guy is auditioning to maybe be her husband. So I want the what's best for her. Well, in the context of this story... These people are getting involved in relationships they have no business getting involved with. And oh, by the way, some of them, and this is where it becomes very egregious, some of them are actually leaving their spouses to go and get involved in these relationships. And that is why Malachi opens that section of verses 10 to 16. He says, you've been treating each other faithlessly. They've been treating each other faithlessly. They've been treating each other unjustly. Which adds all the more irony to verse 17. So let's look back at verse 17. Let's try to get in the mindset of these people. So Malachi, here's an indictment he's bringing to them. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And the people are like, uh, I don't think so. What do you mean, Malachi? Can you give us an example? Because I don't, I don't really think that's true. So he says, oh, okay, Sure, yeah, here's what I'm saying. Um, you weary God when you say things like, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord? You weary him when you say that. Or when you ask the question, where is the God of justice? You weary him. You think, you think those things are true? Well, probably not, but... We're just really mad right now, Malachi. I got that. I got that you're mad. So that's what people tend to do. Like when they get really mad and they get really angry, they tend to say things to try to get you mad and angry, to almost like become angry with them. And sometimes in what story they tell you, it's not exactly accurate. So you have wearied the Lord with your words. You're, you're saying things you shouldn't be saying. The people of Judah, here's the thing that I know, like they're mad, they're angry, they're upset. And why? Because they feel like good should be happening to them. Not bad, they feel like good should be happening to them. And they're angry. And they're frustrated. And people, when they're angry and when they get frustrated, they don't always tend to act very well. Like when you think about what do we, how do we normally act when we tend to get angry and frustrated? Some, I mean, some of you are like, I just usually read my Bible and pray. And I mean, that's, that's a good thing to do. Um, as long as, I mean, you're not in doing that, maybe spending 10 minutes staging the perfect Instagram photo selfie of you doing your devotions. <laughs> people always laugh when there's a little truth to that. 
No, but that's a good thing to do, reading your Bible and then praying when you're angry. But if we're being really honest, like I imagine that most of us, when we become angry and we become frustrated, we don't usually oftentimes maybe perhaps respond the way we should. And neither does Judah. They start talking crap. Sorry, that's what they start doing. They start complaining. They have a terrible attitude and they start saying, yeah, everyone who does evil is good in God's eyes. Well, that's not true. Yeah, well, when you're angry and you're frustrated, you start saying things and it sometimes lacks the truth because you're mad and you're frustrated and you're angry. Where is the God of justice? Why are you asking this question? People of Judah, you, you are wearying the Lord. You're just talking a bunch of nonsense right now. And Why? Uh, because the people are frustrated. You see, 80 years earlier, the people, their ancestors, they were living in Babylonian captivity. Going back all the way to 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes people back into captivity. The people lived in captivity a long time. Then finally, under Cyrus, in 539, he allows them to go back home. They go back home, the temple gets rebuilt. And they're thinking, okay, well, we served our time. Things should be good now. We paid our price. Most of our ancestors died in captivity. Good should be happening. The temple's rebuilt. We're back, we're back home. Why isn't good happening? And I get it. They're, they're frustrated. They're wrong. They're sinning. But I understand. They're, they're, there's a major sense of frustration. Because in their minds, they think they should and deserve good things. And that expectation is not being met which is only adding more to their frustration. They're thinking, you know, we we should be having a restored prosperity. That's what Zechariah said. That's what Haggai said. Why isn't it happening? It should be happening right now. Bitterness oftentimes sets in. When we uh, think we deserve to be treated a certain way and that doesn't happen and those expectations met, we don't always respond well. So I'm at the National Training Center with with my unit. And uh, the one soldier who I had a two-hour conversation with in the Humvee, and he's asking me all these questions, so he comes up to me. I'm on my cot. He comes over. He's like, hey, sir. He's like, hey, we're having this conversation about religion, and they're asking me questions, and can you come over here? Because I don't really know like, all the answers. And I'm thinking, definitely we'll come over there. Love those type of conversations. So I go over. I sit on the cot. I'm chilling with the guys. And uh, the one soldier tells me right away that he doesn't believe in God. And so I'm thinking, okay. Um, and always, there's always a reason um, why. There's always a story behind those type of statements. But I first addressed that issue. He said, oh, yeah, I don't believe in God. Well, I said, well, normally when I have conversations, I operate with two premises, uh, two presuppositions, you might say, that there is a God and the Bible is his word. Those are the two presuppositions that I bring to any conversation. There is a God and the Bible is his word. And I know oftentimes people say, well, pff, I'm not going to talk to you. Those are crazy, ridiculous presuppositions to bring forth in a conversation. You prove to me that God exists, and then we can have a conversation. In which case, I usually reply, I will prove to you that God exists just as soon as you prove to me that God does not exist. I said, look at that M249 machine gun on the floor. We had 24-hour operations. We're getting attacked every other day. People throwing CS gas in on us, so everyone had their, their guns and weapons nearby. I said, that M249 machine gun. I said, do you know if that was manufactured in the U.S.? He said, I don't know, maybe. 
I said, but it was manufactured somewhere. He said, yeah. I said, so someone made that machine gun. He said, well, yes. I said, how do you know? Did you see them make that? What do you mean did I see that? I, I said, I don't know, I know, indulge me. I said, I know I'm asking a crazy question. I said, but if you think about it, the fact that the machine gun exists is evidence that someone made it. Think of a painting for a second. You don't ask the question, huh, I wonder if someone painted that painting. No one asked that question. The painting is evidence that there was a painter. I said, the Humvee outside. I said, did someone make that Humvee? He said, well, of course someone made the Humvee. How do you know? I said, the Humvee is evidence that someone made it. When you look at creation, the fact that creation exists is evidence that there was a, a designer behind it. And so we talked a little bit more. Like I said, there's always a story behind those type of comments. And one of the reasons we do small groups here is so that we can care for people. And oh, by the way, you can't care for people if you don't even know them. That's why we, we, we go to small group, and half the time at small group is usually dedicated just to like talking, sharing prayer requests, needs, sometimes hurts. And he said, you know, I can't believe in God. I said, why not? He said, because when I was younger, I lived with my grandfather. And he, he said, he would just abuse me all the time. Physically abuse me. I would tell you some of the things that just, it. He said, the things he'd do, and I would pray all the time that God would just make it stop. I pray, like, God, like, make it stop. I don't want this to happen. He said, you know what? He never did. I said, so what happened? He said, well, one day I just left. I joined the army. So I said, I'm really sorry that happened. I said, but how do you know that God didn't answer your prayer? I said, please don't harden your heart toward him. I said, please don't think that just because he didn't answer your prayer when you wanted him to answer it and how you thought he should answer it means that he doesn't care about you or somehow he doesn't love you or that he doesn't exist. The people of Judah are frustrated. I get that. Their ancestors died in captivity. I mean, that was their own sin that ultimately led to that, them getting there. But they feel like, man, we've done our time. When are the restored blessings that Haggai spoke about and that Zechariah spoke about? When are those going to happen? It's just so exhausting. And they feel like it's not happening the way we think it should happen. It's not happening based on what our expectations are. And so someone's to blame about this. So we're just going to be mad and angry and we're going to complain and we're going to say things and maybe they're not true, but I'm going to say it anyways because I'm angry. Because we deserve better. And maybe that's you, and you feel like that right now. And you feel like you just deserve better, and things, you just, you can't catch a break. Like, you're two weeks into the semester, and you're just so overwhelmed by the work, and you're like, when am I going to catch a break? Or that girl that you like, you found out that she has a boyfriend, and it's just your world's collapsing, and, but is there a ring? I don't know. <laughs> I'll just say this. Let me see, let me see. I say this, and I don't say this to be a jerk. I don't say this to be a jerk. I say this to hopefully create in you a, a spirit of thanksgiving. For those of you who feel like maybe you're not getting what you deserve, let's, let me be clear. If God gave us just what we deserved, we'd be in hell. 
I don't, I'm not saying that to be a jerk because I know there's a story behind those feelings. But I'm saying that to create a spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude to God, which I think might be a good antidote to what these people are experiencing now. You see, these people are just so stuck on this thing that, oh, by the way, they're ignoring their own sins. They're so stuck on the fact that it seems that there are some people either in Judah or around Judah and they're going unpunished. That All they're focused on is, is this thing. There is unfaithfulness happening. Remember we said this, this verse does not stand alone. This verse comes on the end of verses 10 to 16. There, there is gross uh, unfaithfulness happening, injustice, injustice happening. But it's not on the part of God. It's on their own part. They're being unfaithful to one another. They're not treating their brothers and sisters in Christ the way they should. And they're so focused on what they think they deserve that they're not even checking themselves. They're not checking their own attitudes. But perhaps the most interesting part of this verse is Malachi's statement. He says, you've wearied the Lord. I saw that. I thought that was a weird thing. God's wearied? Usually I say, like, God, God's not taxed by anything. Nothing taxes him. Our God, he never sleeps nor slumbers, the psalmist says. So how can he be wearied? Let me, let me be clear. Um, this requires a, a little bit of lengthy explanation, and that's where we're going to unpack the rest of this text. The, the word weary in the original language, it can refer to, you might think, being physically spent as a result of prolonged Travel, labor, or other activity. It can also refer to emotional disturbances, a sense of being annoyed, or exhaustion resulted from the persistent stresses, sorrows, and trials of life. And yet, Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Big picture. The weariness of God, it represents the fact that God's patience is nearing an end. And yet, it introduces to us what is known as the doctrine of impassibility. The doctrine of impassibility. I don't imagine that maybe you've heard of that. I hadn't have heard, I didn't hear about that until I was studying this passage. But the doctrine of impassibility says this. If something is impassable, it is incapable of experience emotions or sufferings. If it's passable, it is capable of experience emotions or suffering. So the idea that Malachi says you've wearied the Lord suggests an interesting thing. Can God experience suffering and emotions? Or can he not? Because those that would argue for the doctrine of impassibility, they would say, no. They would say he cannot. Because if he can't experience such things, if God can be affected by the emotions of his creatures, then perhaps God could be swayed by such emotional appeals to act contrary to his will. And yet Malachi says that he's been wearied. Not only does Malachi say that he's been wearied, if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, we see another illustration. And it says, for because, this is Hebrews 2, 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, it seems like he can experience suffering. What about emotions? You go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, and it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. 
Sounds like emotions to me. So what are we to make of this? The great Bible teacher John Calvin commenting on the the passage, the divine repentance passage in Genesis 6-6, he says, Certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but remains forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. And I would agree with Calvin, but to a point, he may be saying something that I think he's saying that he's not really saying. I do agree with Calvin that God is the happiest being in the universe. He is the happiest being in the universe because ultimately God is the only being in the universe whose will is totally and completely free. God is the only being in the universe who can really do whatever he wants to do. God can only do whatever he wants to do. And so I would say yes. Yes, God is the happiest being in the universe because no one can stop his plans from being accomplished. He is the quarterback that never throws an incomplete pass unless he meant to throw it. So yes, I would agree with Calvin. I would say, yes, he, he is happy. Now, I don't know if Calvin's saying that he can't experience sadness or sorrow or that he can't experience a continual state, but surely I would say he can experience such emotions if words mean anything at all, which I believe words do mean things, then God is capable of grief God is capable of joy. God is capable of anger. God is capable of gratification. And, there, and yet, there is nothing that can force such states of feeling upon him without him being willing to undergo them. So, what do we make of this? Some people would say, well, God can only experience emotions and suffering in Christ in the humanity of Christ. And he is limited to those emotions that he is able to experience. And yet, in saying that, well, we've got a serious problem because I think that definitely would have direct impact not only on the Godhead, the Trinity. There's one God, three persons, but that would also affect the incarnation, God becoming man. And then what are you to do with passages like John 14? Noah, I know you could probably quote this, but... Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I would say such statements there force us to conclude that emotion and suffering that we see in the incarnate Christ is an essential and eternal aspect of the divine nature. So, where do we go? What do we make of this? So he can, Joe, if I'm hearing you right, he can experience emotions and suffering. Yes, that is what I'm saying. But I would caveat that statement. As A.J. Mason, I guess he's quoted in the New American Commentary, he says this, the thought that many today say that it is possible to maintain the doctrine of impassibility is only possible in the sense that although God experiences emotions, and here it is, He is not controlled by emotion. And I'm going to come because there's a lot there that I think we're going to learn and we're going to see more of who this great God and King of ours is. So I would say that, yes, God experiences emotions and sufferings, but He is not controlled by them. Let me illustrate it. Human experience usually proceeds from emotion, then to will, then to action. 
So as a human being, I'll break it down into three categories. Category one, I experience an emotion. Category two, from that emotion, it gives birth to a will. Three, the will gives forth to action. Okay? So there's some type of experience, an emotion that triggers the will, and then the action. Okay, maybe you're a young single guy, and you see a really attractive girl. And there is something that's going on in your brain, and you don't know what, and you're just like, whoa, she is pretty. And you're just feeling this overwhelmed urge, like, I need to get to know her. So from that emotion, that experience, this, this will is pulling you to go and talk to her, and perhaps you come and you say, hey, I'm Joe. What's your name? Or maybe you just say, hi. <laughs> and she says, hi. And you're like, hi. <laughs> we all crash and burn it sometimes, guys. Okay, there's the process. Emotion takes place. It gives birth to the will, which gives birth to the action. But it is different for God. And let me explain how it is different. And I would say this distinction that we're going to introduce right now is part of what the doctrine of impassibility is all about. For us, it begins with emotion. For God, it begins with will. Phase two, this is normally where our will is taking place. For God, this is where his emotion is taking place. And then his divine action. I said earlier that God can experience emotions and suffering, but he is not controlled by them. We oftentimes say, we throw out the phrase, ah, man, she's really, or he's really controlled by his emotions, or really governed by that. And and if you think about it, we all are, just to a lesser or greater extent. God is not. The emotions is what happens first for us, then the will, and then the action. But for God, it's the will first. Then it's the emotion, and then it's the action. Why is that significant? It's significant for many reasons that maybe you've never thought of before. I don't know if any of you, you maybe had a dad like my dad. My dad's not a Christian, and you guys know that, most of you. But I always remember walking on eggshells with my pops. I never knew when I'd go and see him if I was going to get good dad or or bad dad, nice dad or mean dad. And I would would just be so scared sometimes. I I didn't know. I I didn't know if he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to upset him because, I mean, emotions are a fickle thing. I mean, like that, and it's just, it's a bad day. So, like, I would just, I would feel like I would just be walking this tightrope whenever I'd go and visit my dad. Um... And still to this day, when, when, I, when I call him up on the phone, I can tell. I can tell right away, instantly, what type of mood he's in. And for many of you, you, you're like, yep, sounds a lot like my dad. And this is where I think the doctrine of impassibility really pays off. Knowing these deep things about God really pays off. Because in those moments, it's hard enough, even when we don't, say anything. It's hard enough even when we keep our mouth closed and we just hope, I hope dad's in a good mood. I hope he's not going to be mean or hurtful uh, to me. And it becomes even more complicated when we do mess up. We do mess up. And that's oftentimes how human relationships are. If those emotions are off, yeah, I'm not going to love you today. I'm going to be a jerk to you today. I'm going to be mean to you today. 
God isn't like that. Like, God loves you, and you don't have to tiptoe around and think, man, like, I really hope he loves me today. I hope he's in a good mood today. I hope he didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed today, because I really need God today. And oh, by the way, I'm not even talking about bringing sin into the picture, because usually when we do sin, we think, oh, no, I can't talk to God. I was just looking at stuff on the computer I shouldn't have been looking at. And oh man, I was doing stuff with my girlfriend I shouldn't have been doing. And, and I, I, I can't read my Bible. I can't come to him in prayer. I can't come to him at all because man, there's no way that he's going to receive me. Oh yes, there is. Because he doesn't love you because he's just feeling like, yeah, I think I'm going to love you today. He loves you because he wills to love you. He wills to love you. He's not governed by forces outside of himself. He's not governed by his emotions. He's not controlled by those emotions. He loves you even because. And think about the story of Malachi here. He starts off, the whole premise of Malachi, you look at Malachi chapter 1, 2, he says, I love you! And then he goes on to say, but you've been messing up in all these areas. And the fact that Malachi is here writing this letter, the fact that Malachi is here preaching this word, is the fact that God loves them. He loves them. And that's good to know. You don't have to walk around on eggshells before your Father God. And that might be just such a foreign concept to some of you who had a dad like mine. And you just, man, I don't know if I'm going to get good dad or bad dad. God is there every day. And He loves you. Not because He's feeling this way or that. Because He's already willed to love you. He's already willed to love you. So I would say that it is sufficient upon that to say that, yes, God does experience emotions. He experiences grief at sin. He rejoices at righteousness. He delights to satisfy the needs of his children. He watches and cares for even birds. He is compassionate. He is attentive even to the smallest detail in your life. See, how do you know? Because Matthew 10, 29-31 says so. And I would say that what emotion God can experience is limited only by the perfection of his will, by his nature. For example, the fact that God is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-wise, he can never really be caught off guard. He can't be surprised. Um, He can't be frustrated. He can't be disappointed. He can be grieved at sin, yes, but he never experiences fear, anxiety, dread of the future. And even the experiences that he is able to have, it's not exactly the same as us. You go through something really hard and your heart feels so grieved and oftentimes you just feel like you're encircled by that grief and by that hurt and by that pain and, and you try to, to climb up over it and, and look and see to what tomorrow holds or what next week or what the month after and you just suck back down by that grief. Even the grief that God experiences is not identical to ours because God is able to see both the beginning and the end simultaneously. His will is determined from within. It is not swayed from without. For some of you who are super fickle and you're trying to get dressed and you pick out like 20 different outfits, and I'm like, God, he doesn't do that for lots of reasons. He's not fickle. He's not governed by how he's feeling any moment. He has no need or cause to change, and we have no need to fear. Church, I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know how your week has been. I don't know how things are with you and God. But I can say, He loves you. He doesn't love you because you've been perfect this week. In fact, this week, you may have just been horrendous. and You may have just sinned a ton this week. 
But the good news is, is that he loves you not because your week was good or bad. He loves you because he's God and he's already willed to love you. Oh, like, if that doesn't encourage you guys, I don't know what will. That's why we like to talk and learn the Bible here, okay? That's why we like to learn deep, heavy, weighty things. Because the more that we learn, the more we see of, of how beautiful and how glorious and how magnificent that he is. Be encouraged tonight. You have wearied, you have wearied the Lord people of Judah. Oh, but by the way, he loves you. You've messed up, but he loves you. God, we love you. You're a good God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you lived the life we could not live, that you died the death we should have died, that you paid the price we could not afford to pay. I thank you for learning these deep, weighty things. I thank you that, yeah, you can experience emotions and, and you can help us even in our suffering, as Hebrew tells us, but that you're also not, you're not controlled by these emotions. And that your mercies are new every day, as Lamentation tells us. Great is your faithfulness. Even when we are unfaithful, you are there. And so I pray for those of us that perhaps we, like the people of Judah, have messed up, sinned a whole lot, that you would grant the people in here a heart of repentance, keeping with 2 Timothy 2.25, that you would grant the people in here a heart of repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they would be encouraged, that they can come to you, that they don't have to be afraid of if you're going to be a mean dad or a nice dad, that you love us unconditionally. Yes, we grieve you when we sin, but you still love us. Oh, that's good news. And we pray these things, Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen.